Welcome everyone to this week's edition of Bombercast following the heartbreaking loss to Port Adelaide on the weekend. I am your regular co-host, The Grizz, uh, and here with me is the other regular co-host, Bonser34. Bonser, how are you tonight? I'm great, Grizz, and I'm going to put you on the spot immediately without any warning whatsoever. Oh, no niceties, just jump in. Let's do it. When was the last time, and you might have you might have seen this article today, I'm hoping you haven't, but when was the last time Essendon won with a goal after the siren? 1913 was that. Damn it, like, you saw the article. Yeah, I did. <laughs> oh, I, I saw that article and, oh, I can't even, I can't remember watching a goal after the siren win and there's a reason for that and it said I'm not 113 years old. <laughs> yeah, Jim, Jimmy Gordon versus University. I, the only one the only one I can remember us getting close to was Lloyd, he had a shot after the goal. I think it was against the Bulldogs and he hit. He scored a point and it was a draw. Yeah, look, if um the last time you did anything was against university, it's been a long time. <laughs> but that's um <laughs> that's uh well just just to add to the the depressive mood. Well, you've set the tone there. Obviously, it was a go after the siren result, unfortunately for Essendon for the second time in less than twelve months. It goes against them. Obviously, uh, this time last year, we'd lost to Collingwood in similar fashion. Dan Houston uh, kicked a, a, an excellent set shot, it must be said, um, from about 55 out to to sink the Bombers, who had bravely come back from a three-goal margin late in the fourth quarter. Bonds, I'll give you the new ball. Um, just in terms of you know, the game, how you saw it, the finish, what was you know the, the big thing or the major impression you got from Saturday night, um, Saturday night's sort of brutal loss? Yeah, it's a tough one to, to talk about, to be honest, because that, that first probably oh, 15, 20 minutes before we got that, that goal in the first quarter, our second goal in the first quarter, Port, Port were all over us, you know, yeah. and, and, to, and to be fair, they probably should have been five goals up at quarter time. You know, they kicked two goals seven in the first quarter. And as they say, bad kicking is bad football. And and you can argue maybe some of those shots were because of our pressure and all that. But you know, they, they dominated. I think I think halfway through that first quarter was something ridiculous, like 86% um, time in their forward half. So that tells you just how much they were dominating, how much under the pump we were. And then, of course, you know, we, we, we came back. Um, they didn't take their chances and then... We didn't take our chances, to be honest. So that second quarter, obviously, they, we kicked two goals, six, and again, bad kicking, bad football. So it, it's tough because it, at various times they dominated, we dominated, and then that second half was probably a bit of an arm wrestle. Really, I think both teams sort of really fought it out well. I think our I think our back six again did an amazing job, considering they are still undersized. Midfield was okay, I thought. Yeah, you know, I actually would, didn't think Zachy actually played all that well, to be honest, for the first half. I thought Merritt was pretty quiet. And then I was shocked to see that he had so much of the ball. And then the second half, he came to life and started sort of to put his put his stamp on the game as he, as he has done this year when we've needed a, a captain's game. Um, and, you know, you talk about the forward line, that was pretty much non-existent, unfortunately. Wiedemann and, and, and Peter Wright, who, despite coming back, looking like he hadn't missed a beat against Carlton, has Turned out Mr. Beat the last couple of weeks. But I think someone today, it might have been Law, actually pointed out that his record against Frio and Port Adelaide is pretty pretty average anyway, which is, I thought was interesting. Um, just sort of continued on. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough one because there's still plenty of positives because they are, Port are a good side, but at the end of the day, we lost. Yeah, um, I'm not. So I'm not surprised or hurt that we lost. I'm probably more upset with how we lost um, more than anything. If you tell me that Port Adelaide were the 
win by five goals, I probably wouldn't bat an eyelid. Um, but uh, just the manner in which she lost the last second minute, the last minute of it. The, my, my, my impression of the game was we did so much right. And once again, it was our late game sort of panicking that cost us. And, and we, you know, we did a pretty detailed pod last year against Collingwood. There was you know, the game against Port Adelaide earlier this year. There was a capitulation against Collingwood earlier this year. Just late game strategy just wasn't good in that last minute 20 and it cost us because the the thing is we did so much right bonds like we did so much good stuff we played against the midfield most consider the best in the league which is you know rosie butters horn francis brownland medalist and ollie wines will and drew you know travis boke can't get in the midfield at the moment, 300-game player for them. And, you know, the likes of Parrish and Merritt and Hobbs and Caldwell with Stringer rotating through gave them everything they could handle. And um, our defence held solid. I think, you know, Laverde did an absolutely outstanding job on Dixon after three-quarter time. The conditions helped, obviously, but he still had to do a job. Um, We did so much right only to sort of let us down ourselves down in that last minute 20 and you can trace it to you know Darcy Parrish missing that that shot the the point there was probably the worst case scenario you, you know kick a goal eight points up you pee he misses and it bounces out of bounds we get a stoppage we can milk some time but he kicks a point they get it straight away bomb down the middle we had four players fly we had three players fly for that contest and two directly behind it who weren't going to affect it if it was marked or punched on and we had no one at the back of the square, so we weren't set up appropriately when everyone knew that ball was going directly down the middle. Everyone from under 14s onward knows exactly where that ball's going. We weren't set up fast enough. Mason Redmond, with that kick, you know, you can't blame him. He's not opposite, but, you know, Nick Martin just dump kicking it 20 metres at the top of the 50. Just, you know, in that moment, you've got to soak up possession, soak up clearances. Collingwood do it so well. Just make it a stoppage after stoppage game. Just really not smart play, Bonson. That's probably the thing that frustrated me most about the game was the last minute 20 when we'd done so much right to get back into it. Yeah, and you did talk about, you mentioned there that we didn't set up well for that that last kick in. And to be honest, I thought it was a weakness of ours all night and it was infuriating because um, Kane Farrell was just kicking over our zone. And yeah. and, the comment, and the commentators said it on TV and you could, and you could see it happening. He, yeah. He'd run to 20 metres out. He kicked the ball 50 metres and it goes straight over our zone and he did it time and time again. And and for whatever reason, the players didn't react. And also, you know, Brad Scott probably, that was probably let down by him too, I think, because when you're on the ground, that sort of stuff happens. You probably don't pick it up that that well when you're on the ground. Yeah. But if you're sitting in the coach's box, it's probably something you, you see. And, and at some point, quarter time, half time, three quarter time, at some point he had to say, look, boys, he's kicking over our zone. So either get to him quicker and pressure him quicker off the mark or set your zone back 20 metres. Because a lot of modern football these days in the AFL, they let the player who is kicking in, they let him have that 15-metre, 20-metre run out to the pocket because then usually the kick you know, goes 40 metres and you punch it over the boundary line and you're done. But Farrell and Butters, when even Butters had a few kick-ins, they weren't doing that kick to the boundary line. They were running that 20 metres and then sort of thumping it halfway between the centre center wing and the corridor. Yeah. Like, and, Trent, and, and so, yeah. Trent McKenzie is the biggest kick in the competition, and he's playing fullback for them, and Kane Farrell's probably the second biggest. And you're right, that we just went picking up on the fact that these two guys have massive left feet, left foot kicks, and they're just launching it over our zones, like you said. 
the the thing for me was that last play. I think it was Redmond and uh, I think it was Redmond and I think it was Laverde were just behind Phillips and Wright who went up for the ball. Right, they were about two meters off the contest. They're in no position to affect that contest. They either need to be up flying and punching it forward, or they need to be back at at the back of the square. Because if they're at the back of the square, then that ball goes straight to them. We gain possession, and we we'll probably be able to you know, compose ourselves, get some. Uh, get a con- get a clear get a stoppage sorry or or, or get it moving back the other way it, it just it wasn't smart play and everyone knew Trent McKenzie as soon as he got the kick in we should have had everyone like you said pushing his own back and just standing at the back of the square because he was always going to launch it you know 70 meters like he did yeah one, one other thing I just want to touch on about that about the Daniel and look the Dan Houston kick it was an amazing kick it was a great kick but I don't know if you noticed interesting little rules tweak though. So Peter Wright was was close to the contest, and he actually mm. wanted to take the mark, but but he's not allowed to anymore. He's not. Mm. So so the player, I, I, I don't know who was standing the mark. I'm sorry, I can't remember who, which of our players stood the mark, but because they were already there, he's actually not allowed to run in and take that mark anymore. So you think the old days, Dan Houston probably would have had to kick that from you know another two or three meters back because Peter Wright's 200 centimeters tall. As sure. a result, that ball falls two or three meters, probably shorter than it did. We punch it through. We win by a point. We celebrate. So it's, it's it's a little bit interesting. I think it's probably not a change the AFL would have thought about when they made that rule change. That you know you can't run into protected zone, and you know it rules rules, and it is what it is. You move on. But it's just something I thought was probably an unintended consequence by what the AFL did when they when they decided that you can't run in and switch on the mark anymore. I actually noticed that live as well. Oh, I thought oh, I sort of slammed my head in my hand. I thought oh, Peter Wright was two meters closer to that contest. It's yeah. better, but you're right. I saw him. Oh, you could see Wright come in, and the umpire push him away and say, "Get out of the protected zone." Wright clearly wanted to get on the mark, but he couldn't. That, that's a great pickup. But I suppose we've talked about the disappointment of of the loss. There was there was still plenty of good things to come out of the game. I, I think the defense. You know, after a, a rocky start, really sort of galvanised. I think Laverde, uh, Zerk Thatcher had the matchup on Dixon early and he was just getting absolutely manhandled. And they made that switch to Laverde and I think he did a much better job. Port have been steamrolling teams, so to keep them 78 points is a fair effort, I thought. It absolutely is. And I think... And we'll probably, I think we're going to have a little bit of conversation about this later. But our, our defense, as as we know, the weakness is they're undersized, but they are still punching above their weight and still holding on. So, you know, how undersized are they really at the moment? We would love another defender in there that could that could have probably, you know, maybe handled Dixon and then you know Laverde or, or Zerk Thatcher or whoever it is could you know zone off onto the second defender and and all of a sudden our, de- our defense does look stronger. But as you said, they hold up. So they were really good. But the one player I do want to talk about. As being a positive out of the game was was Ben Hobbs. I mean, mm. he he, we made him wait, didn't we? We really made him wait for his chance. We didn't give it to him. We made him earn it. We made him really, really earn his chance. And since he's come in, you you can't drop him. Like the the talk was when Shield comes back, when Parrish comes back, what are we going to do with Hobbs? Well, the answer is you leave him in the midfield because you just cannot drop him at the moment the way he's playing. No, you can't. And I think you saw in that last quarter that when Shield got subbed on, Hobbs stopped going into the centre bounces, stopped going to midfield, and Port got on top. And it wasn't really until late in the half when we made that switch back to Hobbs 
and Caldwell starting the centre circle that um, we started to get a bit more of the ascendancy. It, it was There were conditions built for Ben Hobbs, like rainy day, slog, bodies crashing everywhere. You could just tell he loved it. <laughs> and... Uh, he was he was outstanding. To to three quarter time, he had twenty disposals. He only had three in the final quarter, but I think that's again because he was moved out of the midfield. He, he was exceptional. Oh, I, I thought he was excellent. Led us in the inside fifties. You know, had a lot, had some ta- a fair few tackles and and clearances. It was just his sort of game, and I, I, I think you're right. I think now we've got to look at okay. So it's Merritt, it's Hobbs, it's Parish, it's. You know, is she also to feel that need to be making their way? I think for Hobbs going forward, I think he's done enough to, particularly on you know those sorts of conditions, to to earn first place in the midfield along with Cordwell, who I thought you know kicked those two crucial goals in the fourth quarter, and you know had a, an equally impressive game through the midfield. Yeah, and I don't think he can be said to feel because I still think he gives us that point of difference. So it probably does mean Shield push, pushes out to a wing or a half forward flank and. Whether or not Dylan's going to be good enough to to, to have that role change, um, you know, we'll just wait and see. I suppose. I mean, the reality is, as we, you and I have touched on this before, once once the ball's bounced and there's stoppages all around the ground, wingmen these days very rarely stand out of the pack. They 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 very rarely are, are pure wingmen anymore. So so you know, we sort of say Shield or Setterfield has to come out. That's probably only the set of bounces, really. I mean, yeah, around the yeah. ground, around the ground, still probably going to be there. But look, I do want to. Talk about Darcy Parish. There has been apparently some conjecture on the board about his game. I, to be honest, I'm completely ignorant of it because I tend to stay out of the Darcy Parish thread. Although <laughs> I haven't said that, I've probably posted in there this week. Um, but I think it's pretty clear you and I are both of the opinion that he does make the side better. So that, that I'm not interested in having that discussion. But I will say his game on Saturday night. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't great. So he kicks he, he kicks four behinds. It was very Mark McCurry of him to, with that <laughs> late miss, the 99 prelim final, I thought. He went 59% disposal efficiency, which isn't great. He did butcher the ball a little bit. But he also led the game for us in tackles, which is obviously something in the past that's been a big problem for Darcy. He doesn't run both ways, and I thought he actually did do that on Saturday night. He was third for pressure acts, so again, you look at that and go, well, he normally doesn't run both ways, but clearly he did on Saturday night, and he was equal for score involvements. So you know, four of those were his four points, but it, it's tough to say it was a good game, I think. I don't think it was a good game, but at the same time, it's hard to say it was a terrible game because he did a lot of stuff off the ball, and that's probably been his biggest letdown is that he doesn't do that stuff off the ball. And he, he actually did it on Saturday night. The problem was when he got the ball, I thought he was pretty average disposal-wise. Yeah, so my my fear on Darcy is, like you said, that he certainly makes the team better. For me, Darcy's game on the week, I don't know if you remember this, but there was this craze when I was in high school. You know, it was that there was this photo and people used to argue whether the it was this dress that a lot of people argued was gold and a lot of other people argued it was black. It's just sort of depended on sort of what you, you know, the, the preconceived bias you had going into it. And I feel like Darcy's game on the weekend was that in the sense that if you're pro Darcy Parish or you think Darcy's a good player, you'd look at the the stats and go, okay, let us in disposals, clearances, contested possessions, tackles, inside 50s, score involvements. You know, any player that does that, particularly against a midfield like Port Adelaide, had a good night. 
But then if you're, if you're critical of Darcy, you could look at the disposal efficiency, you could look at the clangers and the turnovers, and you can look at the zero goals for, zero goals for and even just using the eye test. A couple of his inside 50s were horrible and go, well, that's why, you know, that's why you don't want Darcy Parrish in your team. Like, it really is, yeah, it depends on what you want to take out of it. I think, you know, part of the reason Hobbs and Caldwell had the games they did was because Parrish and Merritt get so much attention through the midfield that those guys can not freewheel but have don't get as much sort of a negative attention from the opposition midfielders defensively. Like Will and Drew doesn't go to to Hobbs or, or Cordell. He goes to to Parish or Merritt, depending on who's on fire. But I thought he was he was good, not great. Wasn't the reason we lost, although you know that last point would have would have been great if it was a goal. But you know, he certainly wasn't the reason we lost. Um but you know he he wasn't but he could have been the reason we won as well which I think is probably the counterpoint. He kicks that goal, we win. So is he I think that, yeah. Is, is and I, and I, I was going to say, I think that goal, that point you're talking about, that came from perceived pressure because he, yeah. and he wasn't the only one. We had a lot of players that rushed on Saturday night. They were very panicky. Um, Archie Perkins was one I thought just panicked a lot with the ball in hand, and that became because we were playing a top side and we just expected there to be pressure when there wasn't. Yeah. And so I think with Darcy, he could have been the reason we won, but he wasn't. Um, but he wasn't necessarily the reason we lost either. I think he was he was a he was a part of that midfield that had a good night, but he certainly had his moments that really should have been better. For someone that's now an experienced member of the midfield, you need to be you can't kick our goals, you can't kick zero goals four against the top team in the comp. You have to nail at least one of one or two of those. One thing I just want to chat about, um, Sam Wiedemann and, and Peter Wright, you mentioned before, one scoring shot between them. I was sort of shocked that Sam Wiedemann wasn't subbed as opposed to Jai Menzi, and we can get into that a little bit later as a questionable tactical decision. We're not getting much out of those two, and I think the only sort of the saving grace is the fact that Jaden Hunter and Harry Jones aren't fit at the moment because otherwise you'd be questioning the position of at least Sam Wiedemann at this point, I would think. Yeah, well, you don't question Peter Wright because he kicked fifty goals last no, year. So you, no, no, and he's coming off a ten weeks with his shoulder. So you give him, you give him as much time you, as he needs this season to to sort of get that touch back. Um, but yeah, Wiedemann, I just, I, I, yeah, I, I don't understand why we're persisting with Wiedemann. I understand the theory that someone like Patrick Voss does not give us the same as Sam Wiedemann, and that was the same argument that was made when I was petitioning for him to replace Harry Jones. I get that he doesn't do the same thing. But he he did kick two on the weekend. He did play relatively well, well, uh, relatively okay from what I saw. I would still be bringing him in. Yes, it changes the structure, but the structure's not working. Yeah. So so the whole argument, the whole argument, I for me at the moment that you know we can't drop Wiedemann because Jones and 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 I just I can't even remember what the other bloke's name is, but um <laughs> because they're not there. That Jayden doesn't. doesn't, doesn't Jaden Hunt. Jaden Hunt. Sorry. Yeah. yeah the, that that just that just doesn't hold any weight to me because the the reality is if you're watching the, the three games that he has played alongside Peter Wright, it's clearly not worked. Yeah. So we can keep doing what we know is not working for the last three games, or let's try something else because we're not winning the flag this year. I, I don't know how many times this has to be said, but Essendon are not going to win the flag this year. We <laughs> may jag in the finals. We may jag a finals win, you know, and end the streak and all that rubbish. That's great. We're still not going to win the flag. So the whole concept of we need to play Wiedemann because we need this structure that has to work for finals is crap. You yeah. play players on form and Wiedemann's form is crap. And the argument that his depth 
also doesn't hold any weight at the moment because he's not playing at a level you can accept from a depth player. He's playing at such a poor level. He deserves to be dropped regardless of whether or not he's the future of the club or we got him for cheap or we're not or we're paying him peanuts. You don't play well. You you don't get to stay in the same team. That's how it works. Yeah. I, I, so my thing with Sam is if you you're not going to so he's just he's providing a contest around the ground. I'm not convinced that Patrick Voss couldn't do that. The big thing for me is when if you're not contributing all that much around the ground, you have to nail. If you're not contributing that much generally, you have to nail your chances. And he is just. I think it's confidence, whether it's technique, confidence, I don't know. But he can't hit the fat side of a barn at the moment. When he missed that 20-metre set short, basically directly in front, I just about lost the plot because, you know, you can't... Did you, did you for a second think he was going to kick that? Because I had no confidence. I, I, I was... I, I was, was when, it, I when was, he's lining up. I was like, yeah, he'll miss. No worries. I was hoping. I didn't expect it. I was hoping, and I hoped against hope. Clearly, yeah, you can't, you can't provide so little elsewhere and fluff those sorts of chances. And um, unfortunately, well, fortunately for him, and not a lot of options. I, if they picked Voss this week and decided to to throw Voss in the ruck for five minutes a quarter, or even just bring Brian in and go with a really small forward line, like replace Wiedemann for 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 Brian, I wouldn't be upset, to be honest, um, now that we've got right back in the team. I actually suspect that one change that might be made is once Setterfield is fit, we might see Setterfield come in for Wiedemann and then Stringer goes back to being a more, dominant, uh, more predominant forward. And so you've got right string and Langford as your tools and a bit more, bit more mobility around the ground. But that that's that's future future problems. I think we can both agree it was a good game for ninety percent of it. The, last, the first ten minutes and the last minute twenty probably let us down, but uh, it's it sort of uh, that is what it is. Moving on to sort of the next week, injury news: Zach Reed ruled out for the rest of the year with hamstring surgery. Just can't get any continuity going but it it raises an interesting point that you wanted to raise about um some off-field targets that were raised in the media so i might just let give you the new ball here there's an article by fox sports that you thought was particularly interesting yeah so fox put out an article today talking about you know the fact that we have two million dollars in salary cap space now they did now it's it's interesting because that two million dollars that we have is on top of what Darcy Parrish's and Mason Redmond's current salaries are. So yeah. if if they both leave, that two million dollars probably turns into three million dollars, which is you know a hell of a space you've got to you've got to fill. Or, or, or um, plus that. So Darcy Parrish was on the one hundred risk wish uh, richly said about seven fifty. So, yeah, so you're really looking at probably another one point three, one point four there, to be honest. Yeah. But your point taken. Your point taken. Yeah. So 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 you know the argument is that that $2 million is going to be filled, filled by Darcy and Mason is actually not correct because a lot of that $2 million being floated around at the moment is assuming that Darcy and, and Mason keep their current contracts, which I don't think will happen. They'll, they'll go up. In, they'll go have to go up in dollars. So, you know, we will lose some of that $2 million to, to those two, but we're not going to lose all of it. So the, the, then, then it becomes, well, what do you do with it? So... Obviously, Ben Mackay from North is out of contract. There is talk that he's going to command $800,000. I think that's insane. I would yes. not be paying. Look, the thing is, like, he's a great player when he's fit. He was a great player three or oh, four seasons ago. 
Is he? He, was, he, he went, went three or four seasons ago before before he had this horrid run with injuries. I would have happily paid him eight hundred thousand dollars to to play at the Essendon Football Club. Are you Problem sure you're not, he's had that? Are you sure you're not talking about Harry? Like this no, is, like ben, ben, no, 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 no. Ben, ben was a good. Ben has been a gun defender before. I'm talking about before his injuries. So if you look at his his recent history, you know it's it's, it's been brutal. Like he, obviously. He's come back to North and he's been average since he came back, but I think he's come back because he checked out. But when he was 2021, when he was up and about, he was a very good player. But 2022, obviously 15 games, he missed seven games last year. He's played 11 this year. He's, he's sort of, you know, he's been there, but he hasn't really been there for them. Although he was pretty good against, he actually was pretty good against us, let's be honest. Yeah, Sam Wee. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, okay, against Sam Wee, but, but still, I mean... Yeah, you've sure. still got to do it. So I, I just look at it and go, well, a couple of years ago, I probably would have paid the 800 grand. But the reality is he, he was injured last year and he didn't look great last year. And this year, he doesn't look like he wants to be there. So he's clearly got his foot out the door. There is talk he's going to port. So I, I, I wouldn't be paying him 800,000 purely because just because we have this massive space we have to pay 600,000. Yeah, sure. Why not? I mean, we need a defender. Uh, Reality is you need to defend it, but I think that I think the main target we're probably going to try and hit up is which they also mentioned in the article is Harry Himmelberg. So Harry Himmelberg obviously can play forward or back, a um, bit of a swing man, bit of Kyle Hooker about him, and he's probably a player. And, and again, they're talking nine hundred thousand for him. I think that's an insane amount of money for for him. You'd probably be looking at like seven hundred thousand, eight hundred thousand, and then yeah, bonuses get you up to that nine hundred sort of mark. But you certainly, I don't know if you'd be paying him nine hundred straight up. But they're talking Carlton. Could pay nine hundred. I don't know where Carlton's getting the money from, but you know that's is what it is. You then look, but then you obviously you need to you need to look forward as well. So you look forward at, at next year and and coming out of contract next year is you know Aaron Norton, which would be lovely to play him up forward. Ben King comes out of contract yet again, um, yeah. so he'll be up there. Todd Marshall's out of contract, and I don't mind Todd Marshall. He's come on really well. He's the only free agent out of those three, though. So you, you look at that. Cam Zerhar becomes a free agent at the end of next year, and we obviously had a crack at him. Last year, I believe we had a crack at him, or the year before. Um, so that's probably somebody else we might be looking at. Then you got then you, the other one that they put in there, which is one that I just unless Mason Redmond leaves from uh, Dude from Adelaide, it, it just doesn't fit. I don't see how he fits into the side because yeah. we're already undersized down there. So you, yes, he's he's a very good player, and he, he's probably look he is probably an upgrade on on Laverde, but he's not gonna he's not gonna solve our problems though. Yeah, really. let's let's be honest. So you're sort of upgrading, you know, you upgrade your Laverde, which is fine, but you don't need an upgrade of him. You need a different model to him. Yeah. So I, when I read this article today, it, it just read as Essendon's got the most salary cap in the league. Let's just throw all the names in there. Let's just they they could go for everyone. I'm not big on Ben Mackay. I think he's had a horrific run with injuries, horrific run with form coming back from injuries. When you're paying even $600,000 like, for a player, that's borderline. I, you know, that's Mason Redmond currently, basically, I think. So oh, he's not that good. Now, again, you've got to pay a premium to get him out. I understand that. We've got the salary cap room and that you can't roll over indefinitely. So we have to use it. And we can, you know, you can, you might be 600 annually and you front end it. So in the back couple of years, it's not as much. But 
I just can't swallow 650 for Ben Mackay. And Harry Himmelberg, for me, is really is all too similar to Jordan Ridley for mine. I think he plays... He's not a genuine key position defender. He's an intercepting float across high quality, but I think he there's a fair bit of overlap between him and, and Jordan Ridley and Zerk Thatcher, I think, even at different points. So I'm not entirely sure I want to be spending that amount of money on him. And there's just no key forwards of note. But uh, I don't know. I, I just feel like... We're probably going to get someone this year. And the other sort of complicating factor of Bonds is if one of Parrish or Redmond go, we don't probably don't want to sign Mackay or Himmelberg because it affects our first-round compensation. Yeah, well, well that, that, that plays into it too, doesn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. so I, I just don't know. It, it, look, no one thought that Jack Bowes was leaving this time last year. You know, Isaac, you know, Jordan Dawson was signed, sealed, and delivered to the Swans two years ago. This time, this time two years ago, guys will rock up. But if it is a, a Harry Mackay, I suppose I get it, considering we're so undersized in defence. But geez, not for eight hundred k. No, but I will just say that the one thing you have to keep in mind when you, when we're talking about Ben Mackay at six hundred thousand, all that sort of stuff, the salary cap will be fifteen million dollars next year. And it will go up again and again and again. And, and by the time, if you're saying you're signing on a four or five year deal, by the time that ends, you're look, probably looking at a salary cap of $17 million, which is a lot of money. Um, so I think one thing you ha- people have to keep in mind is when we're talking about that six six fifty, that's not like the old days, you know, when we, we had the 11 mil cap and 400,000 was seen as a lot. I think six to six fifty is going to become the normal. It's going to be the slightly above average pay, which, you know, it's, it sounds ridiculous. That, that kind of money is going to be the slightly above average, but it's probably what it's going to end up being. I, I think at some point, you know, we're going to end up with the average salary being $450,000. So if, if you accept that Ben Mackay in, in his position is, is above average, and I, I'd, I'd argue he's definitely above average in his position, it's probably not as outrageous as, as maybe you think. Because, I mean, I mean, the salary cap's 14.7 this year. It, it's a lot of money. Yeah, and I and I think sometimes when we talk this six hundred thousand dollar mark, we we do sort of forget that it's only going to be you know three or four percent of the cap by oh. the time the contract ends. Yeah, I, I just I still feel that he, I don't feel he's above average. I think at best at the moment he's average. Now th- there's an there's an element of he could you know in a new system with a functioning sort of backline around him you know play better. Yeah, that's always a chance, but you don't, you know, that's that's a big risk to take at 650, 700. And, you know, a lot of these players that sign contracts now will will likely either, you'll have to pay a premium or you'll pay market value and there'll be clauses in the contract that, you know, it raises percentage with CB, with the um, TPP, which some players do have in their contract. So you've got to be really careful that if you're going to sign Mackay to big bucks that you go, okay, we'll give you the five, ten percent premium up front, but we're not giving you the clauses that escalate it with the up as the TBP increases. So this is all stuff that Doro and Josh Marnie and Craig Mozo will be all across at the moment as they look at players. I think we we're we're four we're probably five really good players away from being in contention. Like we've got a lot of guys that you know, a solid role players, but we're probably five to you know, four or five genuine guns away, I think, or you know, a B plus A graders away. So you know, we'll have to get creative in how we source them. I did notice that on top of you know Todd Marshall and all those other guys, another guy that's out of contract next year, 
uh, your man Jamara Yugo Hagen Bonds. Now that's now no. there's someone we could be targeting, and don't you think? We can absolutely look. We can absolutely target him, and and <laughs> I, 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 I think the problem the, the problem with Jamara, my issue with Jamara, and this gets lost <laughs> to translation because people people argue that uh, I reckon he's no good. It's not that he's no good. It's just that I don't think he's going to be the superstar that they think he is. Sure. I, yeah. I, like uh, somebody said on the board, oh, he'll definitely kick fifty goals in the season. Based on what? Like fifty goals in the season is not easy to do anymore. So you know, we'll, we'll wait. So the other thing you just have to keep in mind is Nick Martin, Andy McGrath, Archie Perkins, Elijah Sardis, yes. Jake Stringer, Jai Caldwell, Sam Durham, and of course Will Setterfield. They did include Sam Weedman, but I'm not going to worry about him. They're all out of contract at the end yeah. of 2024. So that's so, so Nick Martin's definitely getting paid. Andy McGrath, yeah, he might go up a little bit. Archie Perkins, he. Probably won't go up. Yeah, he's on his rookie wage, but he did extend the extension. Is he worth more than what he's on currently? Probably not. Sardis, we, we have no idea yet. Stringer, you'd imagine, will come down in cash because of his age. Caldwell's probably going to get a little bit more if he keeps this form up. And and Durham, you know, we'll, we'll wait and see. Um, it would be fantastic for us, though, if you could trade salary cap for draft picks, which they are. He's on the table at AFL House right now. They are discussing that so if that was a come I, I in, if that was a come in this year that would be golden i think we we could sell a fair bit we've got the other thing to remember is we've got rolling salary cap rate space for the next couple of years we've been well under the cap for two or three years now so every year that you're under the cap by 10 percent, you can carry that 10 percent over for another year we've been under for two or three years now so we'll have 10 percent extra in our cap for the next few years now Hopefully, we're using that up with good players that we can add, but there is the possibility we can sell that for, for draft picks if we want. But that's all, I suppose, remains to be seen. Yeah, and as a, I look, I don't believe it'll happen this year. I don't think the AFL is going to pull the trigger on it this year, um, but there is certainly real discussions happening for the potential so you avoid what happened last year where Geelong was able to just trade essentially nothing and, and picked up picked up. A player, yeah, um, and and a, and a good draft pick because of the contract. In, in that scenario, the AFL in the future would say, "Well, Geelong can give up the salary cap. Ge- Gold Coast can keep the player, and and as a result, they give Geelong the, the draft pick." Yeah, I rather think... than being able to get both, which I think is a much better idea. Yeah, well, it happens all the time in in, in other leagues, um, such as the NBA or NHL, and they have what's called. And trade... we do love the US sports. Yeah, like they're essentially trade exemptions where they, yeah. they trade players um, for a draft pick and there's this massive sort of salary cap exception that, that that's built in because of it. And I think that's probably the mechanism we're going to. We'll probably wrap it up there. We haven't got much time left. Um, we haven't got into the Adelaide game this week, but it's a fair way away, a fair bit to play in terms of teams and selection. So we'll let sort of Don the, Don the stat and other podcasts look after that. But Bonds, thanks for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, mate. It's been great. No worries. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for listening. Make sure you like, subscribe, and tell your mate.